are listening to the podcast of Trinity Grace Church Williamsburg. Our longing is to see heaven come to earth in Brooklyn. For more information on our church, please visit tgcwilliamsburg.com. Kristen Nicholas. I'm a community group and hospitality team leader and also a deacon of discipleship. Our teaching text this morning is from 2 Timothy 3.16-17. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Hello, friends. Um, Just before we get into this text, I just want to say that if your experience of our church at the moment is limited to this live stream, then you are missing out. Uh, As Gemma mentioned, we've got night watch prayer going on every night of the week from 9 to 10 p.m. Pick one night and just show up. We also have a communal prayer hour um, that's led by Sam and myself at 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday morning. And I just want to say that those times of prayer are where the real treasures are. So stay up late, or let's be honest, you're definitely up at 9 p.m. every night, so just maybe transition your attention in the final hour of the evening, or get up a little bit early and join us in prayer. Um, We would love to have you there, and it's my sincere belief that that is where we practice a lot of what we talk about in theory here. Okay, with that being said, um, I'll start here. One of the core teachings on Scripture throughout uh, Christian history has been this, inspiration meaning that this library of 66 old scrolls was written by the pen of many different writers, but it has one author, God. So the Bible is human. It was written by a lot of different people, but the Bible is also divine because every one of these people was writing not their own spiritual musings, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So what makes the Bible different than your favorite Christian book? It's the authorship of God. But where exactly does that idea come from? I mean, why read the Bible different than I'd read To Kill a Mockingbird or Descartes' Philosophy or the sayings of Rumi or, or even Thomas Akempis' The Imitation of Christ, which is the most widely read book throughout history, second only to, you guessed it, the Bible. What reason, other than someone told me what the Bible was before I had the opportunity to discover that for myself, could there possibly be for treating this one book different than all of the others? Or to ask the same question as a picture, if you dropped the Bible, Moby Dick, Shakespeare, and the Quran onto a deserted island with a person who had never read a syllable of any one of them, would they really pick out this one particular book as containing the wisdom of God himself? self. Have you ever thought about that? Is there any reason really to believe that the Bible was inspired by the Holy Spirit? 
Now, the place that most people start to answer that question is by reading what the Bible says about itself, and there's a lot, and it's really clear. The Bible claims to be the living, active Word of God, but if you're one of the many people that doesn't already trust the Bible, that's like listening to the testimony of a witness you believe to be the killer. It's circular reasoning. It does not close the case, not even close. And today, you and I are living in a generation-wide breakdown of trust in the Bible, Today, people are seeing this book with whole new eyes, where previous generations would read Noah's Ark and then turn it into a children's story, which it's not, about where rainbows came from. Today, we read the same story and say, wait a minute, how is that not genocide? See, the Bible is full of weird stuff. It's got plenty of cringeworthy moments. It is covered with the miraculous, which many people find hard to believe or to trust. And so more and more people today are becoming Christians who do not trust the Bible. And in my pastoral experience, that's almost always a layover to becoming no longer Christian, at least not in the way that Jesus defined it. And I've got a ton of empathy for people bent towards skepticism who are unafraid of asking the hard, blunt questions because I'm one of you. My freshman year in Bible college, when I was getting an entire degree just in one book, I have a vivid memory of seeing underneath the hood of this thing and wincing and having to look away. I can go back in my imagination to this moment in one of my classes when I heard my professor teach something from the Bible and I thought, how could that possibly be the inspired idea of God himself? And then looking around the classroom and seeing a bunch of 19-year-olds nodding their heads and just thinking, everyone's taking the medicine and just pretending that it tastes good. I honestly teetered on a crisis of faith during that year. Now, thankfully, I discovered God in these pages, even the cringeworthy ones, even the complicated ones, and I fell more in love with the Bible than ever, but that did not happen without plenty of bumps in the road along the way. And then, of course, there are devout Christians among us who are not skeptical about the origins of the Scripture, but their confidence in God's authorship doesn't mean this thing is working. I mean, we all know people who can quote the Bible backwards and forwards, but they aren't loving, hospitable, unworried, full of joy, and generous. Some of us are those people. So if God was ghostwriting the whole thing, why isn't it working? See, we live in an era of distrust in the Bible, and so I suggest that we start a little bit further back than just what does the Bible say about itself. We go all the way back to questions like, where did this thing come from anyway? And who decided which scrolls got wrapped up in pleather and then sold on Amazon? How did this library become what's in my hands when I pick up the Bible? And how on earth did anyone come to the conclusion that these particular 66 scrolls were the very words of God? That's the ground we're going to cover today. Now, it's Pentecost Sunday when the global church celebrates the giving of the Holy Spirit. So for the next two weeks in our series, Word Made Flesh, we're going to zero in on the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to Scripture. This week, the role of the Spirit in the writers of the Word, and next week, the role of the same Spirit in the readers of the Word. So for today, inspiration is about three things. It is about hearing, seeing, and being. Now let's begin with hearing. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks his disciples, do you still not see or understand? 
Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, ears but fail to hear? That's a theme that gets referenced 14 other places in the Bible, by the way. These words are not entirely original to Jesus. It's a repeated biblical sentiment that some people hear the word but miss the person revealed by the word. If I'm walking through a crowd of strangers and I hear somebody say a phrase that I can make out, but I have no idea who said it, those words are meaningless to me. They're just sounds. But if I hear that exact same phrase come from the mouth of my friend who's walking shoulder to shoulder next to me in that very same crowd, suddenly those sounds take on meaning to me. A word without a personality behind it is just noise. Words come alive when there is relationship to the speaker. Because words reveal something true within the speaker that is then shown to the hearer. They expose thoughts or intentions that would have remained hidden if not spoken. Dallas Willard says that the words we speak literally give someone a piece of our mind. Let that catch up to you for a second. Got it? So by hearing or reading another person's words, we then know their thoughts and feelings and can share more completely in their life. The power of a word lies in the personality those words reveal. So here's Jesus' commentary on the Bible. It is possible to read the Bible but miss the personality these words are revealing. And all these words are revealing one singular personality, and it is that of God. But it was written by dozens of different authors, right? So how exactly does that work? We'll just flip a few pages ahead in the Gospel of Mark to chapter 12. This time Jesus is in the temple teaching and he says this, David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, and then he quotes the Psalms. Now why is that significant? Because the Psalms are David's prayer journal. Jesus is claiming that words David physically wrote with his own pen in his own journal about a century prior didn't belong to him. They weren't David's words. You see, Jesus didn't say David, getting emotional in his diary again, wrote. He didn't say David, by his own personality and with his own mind, said. He didn't say David, meaning well, but having a primitive mindset and a narrow view of God, reasoned that. He says, David, speaking by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is claiming that the words David wrote weren't his own, that they belonged to the Holy Spirit, that the author his words reveal is God. Now, this isn't to say that David was entirely inconsequential in the matter or that his experience and personality and culture didn't matter. Jesus didn't say something like, David fell into a trance and and in a way that was totally beyond his memory, composed a Word document, he woke up and the 150 Psalms were just there, but he had no memory of the events. It's not that either. See, the Bible is written through the unique experiences of many writers, but all of these words reveal one personality. All scripture is God-breathed in the language of 2 Timothy. And I think that's probably the most helpful image that we're given throughout the scripture. Just imagine walking through Washington Square Park. Every time you do, there's a jazz band somewhere playing for tips. So next time you're walking through, just stop and sit down and listen, and then ask yourself this question. Is that sound coming from the saxophone? Or is it coming from the musician? Yes. It's both, right? 
there is not a binary either or answer to that question. Because without the breath of the person behind it, a saxophone is just scrap metal. But with breath behind it, it can make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. It can make you dance the night away. It can move you to tears. But the second that Miles Davis takes his lips off the mouthpiece, it's just metal again. And that's how inspiration works. See, a New Testament scholar makes the same point talking about an orchestra. He says, go to an orchestra and you're going to hear French horns and clarinets and oboes and trumpets and all of those instruments will be making different kinds of sounds, but they all have this in common, that without breath behind them, they make no sound. They're powerless. And when all of those different sounds play together, they reveal one single personality, that of the composer who has written a piece and is translating what he has dreamed up through many different people and sounds and instruments and personalities. All scripture is God breathed. It's human. It comes through the time and culture and expression of so many different human writers who sound as different as a flute does from a tuba, but it's also divine because all of those authors are revealing one personality. And this idea of God as author, it was discovered long before it was understood or taught. I mean, I don't know if you've ever considered this, but the first people to read the Bible had no idea they were reading the Bible. Before there was theological dictionaries and various interpretations, before there were councils to organize all these scrolls into one coherent whole, before people were doing a study on Wednesday nights and there was devotional books with fill in the blanks, there was just people listening to the stories of their ancestors, Abraham and Sarah, Moses and Aaron, Samuel and Deborah. I mean, they were just reading some scraps of Jesus' old sermons or a letter from some apostle that they heard is worth taking seriously. Before anyone used the word inspiration in a theology textbook, it was accidentally discovered by people as common as you and me. It was not a group of theologians sipping tea around the conference table. It was common, salt-of-the-earth kinds of people trying to live alive and awake to the reality of God, trying to discover his image that was within them and allow it to be drawn out to the surface of their lives. It's just a bunch of awestruck people trying to find the words to explain what's happened to them and left them rubbing their eyes in wonder. And so the earliest Christian communities never viewed the Bible as authoritative in some mathematical sense like we do with the textbook. I mean, they believed that these pages were the gateway to revelation. God is personally revealing himself to us on page after page after page, letting us in on the story from the author's perspective so that we can discover what it was like before the plot got so far off track. And the early church at first had only what we now call the Old Testament. That's all they were working with. And then a few eyewitnesses decided to start writing down the stories of the life of Jesus Christ, like any historian would. And a few letters from apostles began circulating through these early churches that were popping up all over the ancient Near Eastern world, or I'm sorry, the Greco-Roman world. And then gradually, early church leaders began to recognize the same personality revealed behind the writings of the New Testament as the writings of the Old Testament. There's the same author. 
And that didn't happen all at once. I mean, it took some time and careful consideration to put the stories of Luke's gospel next to the story of the Exodus and to put Paul's letters right alongside David's Psalms and to hold John's revelation on equal footing as Isaiah's prophecies. But eventually, a consensus emerged from the early church leaders across different cities and cultures and backgrounds and ethnicities that the writings reflected the same author. That is where the idea of the inspiration of Scripture was discovered. It was a discovered belief that was then passed on from generation to generation to one fellow traveler to another who found themselves along the same spiritual journey. And there is no version, either today or historically, of legitimate discipleship to Jesus that does not include the inspiration of Scripture. Now, those are the facts And once you've got the basics, then you get to the really, really fun parts of this. Hearing eventually leads to seeing. So I want to return to an image that we used a few weeks back, and it is that of the warehouse window. Do you remember how Karl Barth describes interacting with scripture? He says it's like a society that has been born into the comfy confines of a warehouse of their own making. Now this warehouse has no doors, but it does have windows. And one day a curious kid climbs up to one of those windows, wipes the grime off of it, and peers outside to see a more expansive world out there beyond the one of his own control. This is what it's like to read the Bible. It is to see God's more expansive reality far beyond the comfy confines of our own control. And seeing God's world has to do with both the content and the form of Scripture. So let's take those one at a time. First, we see another world through the content of Scripture. The content of the Bible encountered in the time and place that it first emerged from was far more than just another theory to explain the mystery of life. It was to peer into another reality altogether. There are plenty of examples of this, but let's just take the most obvious one on the first page, the story of Genesis. The opening pages of the Bible don't have a monopoly on the origins of life, and they never have. When Genesis was written, it was just one of many creation stories that were going around at the time. An equally popular story alongside Genesis was called the Enuma Elish. It goes like this. In the beginning, a battle took place in the pantheon of the gods. One god, Marduk, battled another god, Tiamat, to the death. Marduk won, then cut Tiamat's body in half and used the top half of Tiamat's body to paint the sky and the heavens, the bottom half to paint the earth, and then populated the earth with human beings to take care of the most menial slave labor tasks that needed to be done in this new world of victory. That was the leading creation theory of the ancient Near Eastern world that Genesis debuted in. And before you and I go judging that story as primitive and barbaric from our post-enlightenment thrones, we should consider what it would be like to grow up and live in a world where that is the leading theory on the origins, purpose, and meaning of life. I mean, how would that affect what you think about yourself, what you think about others, and what you think ultimately matters? It was into that world that Genesis was born. And here's what distinguished the Bible's opening pages from every other creation account, is that all of the others were stories of violence between gods and the victorious God that won the right to creation. All of the other creation stories start here. In the beginning, there was power. 
And Genesis came along and made this staggering claim. In the beginning, there was love. Before the creation of the world, when there was nothing but a dark, formless void, there existed a triune God in perfect, loving community. That's a profoundly different starting place. And it means something profoundly different for who I am, who you are, and what actually matters and lasts in this life. And then what does that God of love, uh, when he wants to create, how does that happen? God speaks words that reveal his personality and that which he creates. So God speaks and light pierces dark. God speaks and, and creates the depths of the ocean, the peaks of the mountains. God speaks and the depths are filled with schools of fish and the mountains with flocks of birds. And to a power-obsessed, violent world, Genesis culminates in saying something entirely foreign. God speaks and people are made imago Dei, in his own image. See, the crowning moment of creation is when God breathed life into us, filling the lungs of people like holy CPR, and they come alive. You didn't end up in this story because God's to-do list was getting overrun and cheap labor was needed. You were made to experience the perfect, unbreakable love of the communal God. Before anything else, love is all there was. And at the end, love is all there will be. That's not a different theory. That's a kid wiping grime off a window and saying, come here, can you see this? Now that same thing happens again and again and again as you move through the pages of scripture. But for the sake of time, let's just jump ahead to the New Testament and look at one other instance. The Old Testament is written almost exclusively in Hebrew. And that makes perfect sense because all the writers were Jewish. It's the language that they spoke. The New Testament authors are all also Jewish, and yet every word of it is written in Greek. Why? Because in the gap between the final Old Testament prophet and the arrival of Jesus, Alexander the Great conquered essentially the entire globe and did his best to turn everyone into Greeks, or at least people who spoke Greek. Greek was the language of the New Testament world. To run a government or export a product or build a business, you had to be able to speak Greek no matter what language you spoke at home around your dinner table. In fact, by the time Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Homer, Plato, and Aristotle had all already made their literary contributions to the world, and every one of them did it in Greek. Because if you were writing something that you wanted to last, if you wanted it to be preserved in libraries and documented throughout history, you had to write in Greek. But not just any Greek, you had to write in classical Greek. Because there was a form of writing, a use of the Greek language that said to the reader, this is to be taken seriously. What you're reading is meaningful enough that an upper echelon level of education is a prerequisite for interacting with the content because only the highly educated could read or speak classical Greek. And so into the New Testament world, uh, or I'm sorry, into that world, the New Testament showed up and it was written in common Greek or what's called Koine Greek. Eugene Peterson writes this, it was a surprise. Our Bibles, written not in the educated, polished language of the scholars, historians, philosophers, and theologians, but in the common language of fishermen and prostitutes, homemakers and carpenters. But of course it is, right? I mean, the everyday peasant, that was Jesus' preferred audience. These were the people that he knew best and the company that he chose most. The whole movement was built on fishermen and prostitutes, homemakers and carpenters. 
And Mark chapter 12 says the common people heard him gladly. Jesus constantly preferred the company of the working class, the marginal, the uneducated, and the poor. So of course he would write his story in their language. See, to read the story of Jesus in the New Testament world was not a new theory or philosophy for intellectual consideration. It was to enter into a different world and submit oneself to an entirely different system of value, to who matters and what matters. It is so hard for us to exaggerate just how foolish and comical it would have been for Paul to offer these scrolls written in this language to the elite philosophers on Mars Hill or even just for a Roman homeowner to hear of this movement spreading and open up and see common Greek on the page. But it is equally hard to exaggerate just how dignifying it would have been for a trafficked prostitute to be handed this story in her language, or or for a powerless leper to be invited to share a seat at the same table as a priest just by the commonness of the way the word was written on the page. You see, there was such an effort made by the New Testament authors uh, to gather up and include all people that there are approximately 500 words in the New Testament that you won't find anywhere in any documented Greek literature up until that point. Linguists actually have a whole different name for it. They refer to classical Greek of the elite preserved authors and then Koine Greek or common Greek, which was spoken in the old slums. And then there's biblical Greek, which is written as a language that unites the two. This is what the theologian Richard Roth calls the language of the Holy Spirit. And this, I think, is probably about as concrete and tactile as we can possibly get in explaining what it means that the scriptures were inspired by the very Spirit of God. The content of the scriptures are a revelation. They're a beautiful contradiction revealing the personality of God. This thing is not a new philosophy. It is wiping grime off the warehouse window. Can you see this? And then, of course, there's the form of scripture. Because the various forms of literature that are included in this library are a part of the invitation to see. One word that you'll never find anywhere in the Bible is the word Bible. It it never calls itself the Bible. That part came later. This thing got a title at first from the Latin word Biblia, meaning book, which is a fine title with one major problem, is that this is not a book. It, It is a library of stories and letters and poetry. The Bible isn't just one book. It's a compilation of a whole bunch of different books that all originate in the history of ancient Israel. And so reading the Bible is more like walking into a library than it is opening up a book. And that's really important because you read different genres of literature with different expectations and different interpretations. For example, my favorite book of all time is East of Eden. Such a classic. My son Hank's favorite book of all time is The Tiger Who Came to Tea also a classic for very different reasons. Now, I've read both of these multiple times, and when I open either one, I'm doing the same activity. I'm reading. But the expectations I bring to these books and the way I interact with the material on the page is vastly different. 
And that's something you instinctively do all the time. You read a textbook with a certain set of expectations. You're there to learn and understand. You read a poem with an entirely different set of expectations to contemplate and imagine and be moved. And you read a New York Times article with still different expectations. This is real life events being distilled through the personality and perspective of one person to tell a true story. Now, the Bible is 43% narrative, meaning story, like Exodus and the Gospels and Acts, and we interact with that to learn and understand. But it's 33% poetry, like the Psalms and the Proverbs and the Prophets that we read to contemplate and imagine and be moved. And it's 24% discourse, like the Old Testament law and the New Testament letters, that real-life events being distilled through the perspective of one reporter— and then offered to invite you into a true story. So when you flip through the pages of the Bible, you are walking through a library, and you need to know what type of book you're checking out to know how to interact with the material. The Bible is not an intellectual read. It is a human read. It includes the mind, will, emotions, and body. It dignifies the entire person. You can read the exact same information in a letter, a narrative, and a poem, and each is going to have a different emotional effect on you, even if it contains the same basic information. My grandmother has sent me a birthday card every year until I got into my mid-20s, and I've saved many of those. I've also gotten to hear her life story in bits and pieces that broaden my perspective of who she is over time. So there's letters, but then there's also narrative that I'm interacting with. And several years ago, I was at a poetry slam, uh, an open mic, and I heard someone tell a poem about all that was represented in his grandmother's wrinkly, veiny hands. And I was moved to tears in gratitude for my grandmother's life. So why is it that her letters, her story, and that piece of poetry all had a different effect on me? Because each type of communication invites us to enter the same story in different ways. One is delivering us the information, another is explaining that information, and another is painting a picture that allows us to feel the weight of that information. And this is the way the Bible is written, as an invitation to peer into a different reality, to step into that reality in whole different ways. When you are holding the Bible, you are holding all of that I mean, how cool is that? Honestly, the Bible is such a rebel. I love this stuff. But the whole point of gaining this kind of understanding is that it eventually leads to being. You see, the end of the warehouse window is not just to peek out and be entertained by this other world, but to gain an appetite for God's reality until at last you have the courage to throw open the window and leave your world and enter his. Because if all you do is just admire the safety of the warehouse, or admire another world from the safety of the warehouse that you know, you'll still be primarily shaped by the corruption of the warehouse world, not the expansive freedom of God's. Who you become is shaped not primarily by the story that you study, but by the story that you live in and live out. Without climbing into another reality, almost everyone's future just becomes a replay of their personal past. And that is as tragic and dynamic as the fact that most abused are more likely to become abusers. 
to repeat the worst moments of their past. And it's just as common as that one trigger toward anger or materialism or whatever that you keep promising yourself you won't go back to, but find yourself returning to again and again, no matter what you decide intellectually. You see, Scripture is an invitation to be freed from the confines of those stories into a more expansive story. That's why this God-breathed library is used for, in the language of 2 Timothy, teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Is he translated into English? That honestly sounds to us like some old rote controlling list, but it's actually a freeing invitation. So let me get nerdy, or to be fair, this has been nerdy. So let me stay nerdy and explain that to you. Um, First, teaching. There's two very different Greek words translated as teaching in the New Testament. One is translated into the English word teaching, and the other is translated into the English word teachings, plural. And that's because we only have one English word to hold both of these very different Greek words. But there's a huge difference. You see, the plural form always refers to in Scripture um, moral commands related to our conduct. But the singular form always refers to the proclamation of the gospel or to what Jesus called the good news, the covenant of grace that he made with us. So Scripture is useful for keeping your feet firmly planted in the story of grace. That's what it teaches you. It teaches you how to move to the rhythms of grace to unlearn the cramped restrictions of worth and performance and merit. And then there's rebuking. So here we have the idea that scripture is penetrating, that it cuts through the projected self all the way to our core. The same idea is repeated in Hebrews when it says that the scripture is sharper than a double-edged sword piercing joint and marrow. The word of God breaks the poised projection of how we want to be perceived and gets all the way down to the ground floor of who we really are. In Exodus, Moses discovered something, that no one can look at God face to face and live. The same thing is true in the New Testament, but it's the outer man that dies when you look at God face to face. It is the false self, the carefully manicured, projected self that collapses in the presence of God. We spend so much of our lives pampering and massaging our egos, building some kind of identity that makes us feel strong outwardly but keeps us forever fragile inwardly. Rebuking, as it turns out, is a profound relief because there's no pretending here. This is a story that destroys my false self and frees me from all the pretending and remakes me into the uncorrupted self he breathed at the very beginning. Correcting, or epinorthosis in Greek, is a word picture that means to bring something into alignment or wholeness. The image is that of a broken bone being reset. My son broke his leg when he was one year old. He could barely walk and broke his leg. And the really devastating part of all that wasn't that he needed to heal. We knew that he would heal. It's that healing a broken bone takes time. That we go to the doctor, he resets the bone, he wraps a cast around that bone so it stays in the position of healing, and then we all just wait. And that's exactly what scripture does. It positions us for the deepest, most soul level healing. It resets the broken parts of us, the ones that we can name and the ones that we can't. And then we wait. Day after day, week after week, as we return to these pages, they wrap around us like a cast 
so that we can be completely healed, restored to our original condition. And then finally, training in righteousness. And again, on theme here, the word training is a loaded term. It is the Greek paideia, from which we get the word pedagogy. A paideia was an intentional long process in Hellenistic culture where an infant was nurtured and then educated and trained and then disciplined, guided from infancy to adolescence, at which point they would be initiated into adulthood. Almost every culture that we can trace throughout history has had some process of society-wide adult initiation until the modern West. So they were initiated into the polis, which is Greek for city. Now, the word of God, says the scripture, is a pedagogy. It trains you to the norms of a different polis, a heavenly city. It forms you to the social life, economy, culture, and activity of the kingdom that outlives all of the others. And so I'll close just with a picture to show you what this looks like when it's taken on in a life. Desmond Tutu was born with black skin in South Africa during the height of the racist apartheid. So the whole world was working against him. He was also born the son of an alcoholic and violent father. So his own family was working against him. And he had every reason to be angry, justifiably angry, to live defined by an angry inner drive to overcome the deck that was stacked against him from day one. But he didn't. Instead, he lived a life defined by forgiveness, an alternative story. In 2014, he did an interview where he was pressed by the reporter on his relationship to his dad, and he said, my father has long since died, but if I could speak to him today, I would want to tell him that I had forgiven him. Sounds great in an interview, right? (laughs) But how do you actually get there? How do you forgive someone who played on your weakness, who brutalized your vulnerability, who took all of his dysfunction and anger and pain out on the easiest target? Jesus. See, Desmond Tutu lost himself in the pages of scripture and he was reformed by a story that made no sense in the world of pain that he was born into unless it really is the true story humming beneath the loud in-your-face version that we see all the time. And somewhere in these pages, the same spirit who inspired the very first authors was inspiring him as he read at deeper levels than he could even name. And he became a man who one day could honestly say, I forgive you to his own abuser. Now that is profound healing on its own. But that is not the end of his story. See, when the entire nation of South Africa needed healing from the abuse of apartheid racism and hate and grotesque inequality, Nelson Mandela called the priest from Cape Town, Desmond Tutu, for help. And he established the Truth and Reconciliation Commission across the entire country, which granted perpetrators of violence space to confess and receive forgiveness from those that they had victimized. And the whole world sat by in wonder as Desmond Tutu dragged confession, forgiveness, and reconciliation from a private booth in a Catholic church into the public square. And holiness and humility began to permeate the ground of this nation. See, the forgiveness that began within him in the most personal, intimate, painful place in his own life eventually became a gift to be given away to the world around him. 
an ordinary, unglamorous person was wrapped in the word of God like a cast. And as he was healed, he became an inspired word walking around in a fallen world. This is the end result of a life inspired by the word of God. You become love. We become agents in this mission of recreation given as divine gifts to the world. That's who Desmond Tutu was as an old man with weak knees and wrinkled skin. He was a gift of love given to the world. An empty channel for the spirit of God to flow. A place where heaven and earth were meeting in his inner being. And his life showed us what heaven touching earth really looks like. When the values of heaven are enacted and inhabited and cultivated over decades. So look, if this thing is just a primitive philosophy that against all the odds still stands up for some in the modern world, or if it's just wisdom literature that still has a few helpful things to say, then you should read it. You should consider it. Maybe even you should admire it. But if it's revelation, if it reveals the person of God, then fall on your knees and ask that you might become it. Father, that's what I want to ask for the people of our community. I just want to ask that this hunger would begin to grow up in us, Lord. A contrary hunger. Because I do believe that we live in an era of distrust in your word. And yet I also believe that it is a cast that wraps around us and heals us at the deepest level so that we can become healing for the broken world all around us. And so I pray right now that you would just place a hunger to meet you on these pages in the lives of those for whom there isn't one. People who were hungry once and found the whole thing to be manipulative or boring or confusing or offensive and they just lost interest people who have never been hungry before and and they're in on all the ideas of Jesus but each time they try to engage the word themselves they just find themselves lost and even for people that root their lives here day after day And yet maybe they've settled into norms and patterns where they are feeding themselves, but it's the bare minimum. They're not aware of a hunger. They're not asking to be formed more deeply. I can't imagine something more contrary than a community of people hungering for your word in a generation like ours, in a city like ours. And I know it just makes me sound like one of those conservative types or whatever, but... I just pray that that hunger would grow up in us, God. You are the bread of life. You are the only bread that satisfies. And so give us grace right now, God, to long to taste. And give us grace that as we do, as we try, as we crack open the old book, let us find that what seemed like an empty table before is suddenly a feast. In Jesus' name, amen.